This morning we'll be beginning the Sermon on the Plain, the first extended teaching of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Luke's had much to say about Jesus' teaching up to this point. It seems that just about everywhere he's been going, he's been teaching. But that's about all we know so far, aside from a slight and brief um, snapshot of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, opening up the scroll, reading Isaiah 61, and saying, this is fulfilled today in your hearing, we have not seen any of his teaching. And so for one who comes as a self-identified teacher, whose primary ministry is one of teaching and proclamation, Luke has been building our anticipation. And more than that, Luke has been establishing who Jesus is. It's clear Luke wants us to understand who Jesus is before we listen to his teaching. That the identity of the one making the teaching is crucial to understand his teaching and to respond to it rightly. So I'd like to begin this morning by reading what I'm sure is a very, very familiar passage probably one of the most familiar passages of Jesus' teaching. Um, Something very much like it occurs in Matthew, and they're called Beatitudes. They come in the form of blessings and woes, and Jesus opens his his sermon on the plain in chapter 6, verse 20. Let's read. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven." For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. In this way, Jesus introduces his teaching to us in Luke chapter 6. Now, before we dive into this, we're going to look at this over four points. I I need to set some context. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Plain for a number of weeks. And so we need to make sure we can see the forest and the trees, that we can see the paragraph that we're looking at, but we need to see how it functions within the broader sermon. So I just want to look at three things, the audience, the structure, and then a brief word or two about Beatitudes themselves. First question, who is Jesus talking to? Now, the context is crucial here because how we understand this message is going to relate to who he's speaking to. In fact, I think frequently people think of this as some sort of um, first blessed message. This is what Jesus says to people who've never heard anything from him. But Luke makes it clear in verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Now, go back a little bit further in in chapter 6. Um, in verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place. Now notice the groups here. With a great crowd of his disciples and a multitude of the people from all Judea and Jerusalem. So Luke has distinguished the people that are listening to Jesus' teaching as falling into at least two groups. There's a great multitude of his disciples, his learners, his students, and there's a mass of people. 
And then Luke tells us which of these two groups is being primarily addressed in the sermon, and it's the disciples. That's important. But the reason why that's important is this, this sermon on the plane, this message that he's teaching, is not fundamentally one of how to be saved. There's already some assumed allegiance to Jesus embedded within it. Look, you see that in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. The blessings that he's pronouncing to are to people who already have some form of commitment or identification with Jesus. They're the disciples. Now that group of disciples is a big and changing group. Within that group, people are entering and people are leaving. There are, there are people who are going to make it all the way to the end with Jesus. And there are many, many of his disciples who at various points in his ministry will turn away and go home. You think of John 6, where Jesus has a very hard teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And John says many of his disciples deserted and went home. So just because they're disciples doesn't mean they're saved, but it's, it's a group of people not so unlike us. There's at least some tacit connection to, allegiance to, identification with Jesus. And within that bigger group, there are people who are regenerate, born again. They're sold out. They, they love Jesus. They're following him. And there are others who are going to come and go. And likewise, there are people here this morning who are committed Christ followers, who are children of the living God. And there may be some here who are visiting. And there's, you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some sort of interest or connection to Christ, but, but who knows, maybe you're, you're one of those people more on the fringe of that group of disciples, but it's a similar audience to who I'm talking to right now. Jesus is not simply talking to the masses. Now, the masses can hear this. He's teaching the disciples in the presence of the masses, so there is something for the masses to learn, but the fundamental address is given in the first instance to people who have already made some form of identification with Jesus. In fact, look a little bit later in verse 40. It becomes clear that in some respects he's training his disciples. Disciple simply means a student or a learner. And in verse 40, he's told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? They will not both fall in a pit. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That only makes sense if the people he's talking to would understand themselves as disciples, students of him, the great teacher. So this is, this is not about as much becoming a Christian, what we're going to see, as much as what is expected from or how to identify. Jesus knows in this big group of disciples, some are genuinely men of faith. And others are going to, when the sun comes out, and the thorns grow, that seed will wither and perish. And, and so he's, he's teaching them, and part of what he's teaching them, I mean, look at the structure here of the Sermon on the Plain. In a really simple way, you can look at it as a three-part structure. It begins with blessings and woes. And these are indicatives. Meaning they, 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 Jesus is not instructing what to do as much as he's telling you what is. Blessed are, blessed are but woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. They're, they're truth statements of reality. 
And they put a lot of things upside down. But we're going to see when we look at this is the people we think are in a good situation, we're going to find out aren't. And the people who appear to be in a terrible situation are in a blessed situation. And he's, he's setting the groundwork for the upside down kingdom of Christ where to be low is to be exalted. And then based on those indicatives, those, those statements of fact, he moves into the, the heart of his message, the commands to love and be merciful, found in verses 27 to 38. And the logic is, because these things are true, for instance, because the poor will inherit the kingdom of God, we can lend and not expect to receive back. And because we know of the woes coming upon the wicked, we can love our enemies and turn the cheek, for we know vengeance is coming. We know there is a judgment coming. The, the truth statements and what we're going to look at today serve as the foundation for the imperatives and the commands that follow in the heart of the message. And again, Jesus is not telling you by doing these things, loving your neighbor, turning the cheek, lending without looking for reward, you become saved, rather, this is what he expects, and this is what he calls his disciples to do. This is the ethic of Christ followers, and in some respect, this is how the Christ followers can identify themselves, because at the end of the message, the final spot, verses 39 to 45, is a call for a response. He's laid out truth. He's based on that truth given ethics and and ways to live, and he ends his sermon, like any good sermon, with some application. And he goes through a series of, of examples, culminating, if you look at verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke out against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house in the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. Now, we'll get to this in due time, but let me ask you this one question. What's the difference? What's the rock in this illustration? It's not Jesus. It's obedience. Notice that. The one who hears my word and does them is like a man who built this house on the rock. The one who hears my word and does not do them, verse 49. So what Jesus is saying is, I've just given you teaching. I've just given you teaching. And let me tell you what's going to happen if you're willing to build your life in obedience to it. There's going to be stability. When the trials and the tests come, you will survive. Others of you, he's saying, my would-be disciples, you're not going to put into practice what I say, and you're going to fall away, and you're going to perish. And so you've got the the indicatives, what is, and that sets up the imperatives, how to live, and then a call for a response. What will you do with this? And we're going to look at this entire sermon over a number of weeks, but I want you to see how this fits in. So what we look at this morning, the Beatitudes really set up the foundation of this. And what Jesus does in them is he lays out that all humanity falls either into one of two groups. All of humanity either falls into one of two groups. Ultimately, this culminates into everyone in this room will fall into one of these two categories. Why do I say that? Uh, Isn't it possible that someone can neither be poor nor rich, neither starving with hunger nor satisfied, neither weeping nor laughing? 
neither spoken well of or spoke poorly of? Couldn't a person just sort of glide by in the, in the background? No, look at where it culminates. It culminates in all of humanity standing in, in one of two traditions. The, the, the four blessings and the four woes parallel themselves exactly. Exactly. In fact, that's how we're going to look at that as four points. You've got blessed are the poor, woe to you who are rich. Blessed are the hungry, verse 25, woe to you who are full now. Blessed are you who weep, woe to you who laugh now. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Woe to you, however, when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You're standing either in one of two lanes, one of two traditions, either the tradition of the true prophets or that of the false prophets. And that's why I can say that that this ultimately, all of us in this room will fit into one of these two categories. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. I'm speaking to you now. And what he's saying is, these things are true of you. And it serves two purposes why Jesus can, can say these things. The first is to help identify who you are. Jesus is is speaking of attitudes and and, and self-evaluations and emotional states, desires, and he's speaking to his disciples. The you is to the disciples in both groups, the large group of disciples. And so he's saying, blessed are those of you who do-do-do-do-do-do, but woe to those of you who do-do-do-do-do. And he helps you identify who you are. Do you fall into the blessing camp or the woe camp? Which deserves a word of speaking on blessing. Makarios, blessing, is is to be in the best possible situation. It doesn't simply mean happy. It's, It's joy, but more than joy, it's an advantageous position. Consequently, woe, on the other hand, is to be in the most miserable condition, to be to be in the most pitiable place. It's a blessing and a curse. This follows the Old Testament wisdom pattern and the Deuteronomic pattern. You go to Deuteronomy 30 where God lays out the blessing and the curse and Jesus begins this message. These people, these of you are blessed. These of you are cursed. Notice also Jesus does not say what will be true, but what is true. One of the things you've got to pay attention to is there is a time element here. Look at verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now present, for you shall be satisfied. Future. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Down in verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn. There is a sense in which Jesus' statements depend upon future reality and future truth. What he's teaching them is to define their present reality now in many respects by what's coming down the pike. But notice he's describing not you will be blessed, but you are blessed. And as we look at that, we've got to understand how that works. And I think you can make sense of this. If you've ever seen a photo of the Titanic setting sail and all of the people on board and the people in the luxury cabins and they're waving and they're celebrating, they look to be having a fine time And yet you can look at that photo and you think, those poor, poor people, can't you? Okay. But you understand the point. 
they don't realize they're in a woeful position. But because of what you and I know about the fate of the Titanic, we can look at those people who are laughing, living it up, having a good old time, and we can say, those poor, poor people. And likewise, if you imagine somebody who is bound to set sail for the Titanic, who, who their, their wagon or their car broke down, and you can just imagine in your mind's eye on the side of the road, frustrated, their car's broke. What a blessed person <laughs> to avoid that, right? And that's what Jesus is saying, that the blessed will not always feel blessed, and the, those who have woes spoken to them may look as though they are doing just fine. And Jesus teaches this and lays this out so we can understand things the way God sees things, because the way God sees things is the way things are. And seeing things this way is crucial for us to be able to embrace the commands that follow. So we've got blessings and woe, the Beatitudes. And so I want to deal with them, understanding that all humanity is divided into two groups. And as we read through this, we're going to take each of the pairs together. In fact, I've ordered as four questions. And I want us to ask, which category do we fall into? Jesus is giving us a litmus test to identify what type of disciples we are. He's showing us not how you become saved, but the types of heart attitudes, the, the mindsets of those who are his true disciples. And one commentator writes this, humankind is divided into two groups, the poor and rich, the humble and proud, the responsive and unresponsive. The rise of division about Jesus previously in 517 has set the stage for this contrast. Every listener belongs in one of two camps. The question is, which one? Which one? So let's dive in looking at the first blessing and woe and asking the question this. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then in verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, You've received your consolation. Now, before I go any further, I've I, I got to answer a question. There are plenty of people that I've met, generally in the more liberal stripe, but there's plenty of people who take a very Marxist reading of this passage. And, and when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, I do not say, think he's saying, blessed generally across the boards are everybody who's in poverty, and all those people will inherit the kingdom of God. But there are certainly people who take it that way. And this is, this is what the blessed state of the, of the lower classes and the judgment that's going to come upon the, the um, aristocracy, come across those who are rich. And this is a very Marxist reading this passage. Well, why not read it that way? I mean, after all, Unlike Matthew, Jesus is not quoted here as saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew makes it explicit. In Matthew's account of this sermon or a similar sermon, here it's just blessed are the poor. Likewise, Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Just hungry here. So, so I don't think that's what it means, but why? And you should be asking that question. Why doesn't this just mean it's plain, straightforward thing? Blessed are the poor and the hungry. you got the poor, the hungry, weeping, and the excluded. A couple reasons. The first is this opening blessing on the poor strikes the exact same note, if you turn back to chapter 4, as the opening statement of Jesus' favorite passage of self-identification. It's the one we've already seen where Jesus opens the Bible and says, let me show you where I am in the Bible. He opens it to Isaiah 61. And in Luke 4, 
verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when we studied that, we, we made the point that what Jesus is saying by saying in your hearing is he's identifying his audience as the poor, the blind, and the captive, and the oppressed. And, and they weren't physically captive unless they were locked into that synagogue. This is spiritual. And we, we talked through that and we understood that what Jesus is saying to his audience there, his hometown audience, unless... I only have good news for you if you recognize your spiritual poverty. And I have good news for you if you recognize your spiritual bondage and captivity. And I have good news for you. And I will set you free and give you sight to see if you recognize your blindness. But they didn't recognize their poverty and their blindness and their captivity. And so they tried to kill him. And so when two chapters later, Jesus opens his sermon, the blessing to the poor, I would expect it to be the same group he's talking about. How does Jesus identify his ministry? I am that one. I am that Messiah from Isaiah 61 with a good news to those who are spiritually poor. And he opens up here with poor. The other reason, I think, is because look at the consequence. Those who are poor, whatever Jesus means by poor here, yours is the kingdom of God. And, and unless this is spiritual poverty we're dealing with, then we have to conclude that every poor person who lives and has ever lived will be in heaven, whatever religion they are, whatever creed they are. Surely that can't be right. So no, I, I believe what Jesus is saying, this comes out of the immediate context. Blessed are those, this gets back to the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are before God? Do you think of yourself as rich or do you think of yourself as poor? Do you think of yourself as having chips to spend? Or to use an illustration just from previously in the chapter where he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. By which he's saying, you Pharisees, by failing to recognize your sickness, have no need for me. But this poor, self-recognized publican tax collector, he recognizes his need for me. That's what he's talking about. How, how do you think about yourself? Who do you think you are? before God. Are you a good person? Are you valuable? you have a lot to contribute? Are, are, are you considering signing up for God's team, recognizing how much stronger his cause would be with you on the roster? Or do you recognize your utter bankruptcy before God? That all of your righteous deeds are like medical waste. That... He has no reason to love you other than the fact that he does. We have a hard time with that because we, we live in a culture that celebrates self-worth and self-esteem. and I'm valuable. And apart from God, no, you're not. No, I'm not. 
Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who come to God, not not to buy with your credit and your wealth, but who come empty-handed. Blessed are you who recognize your, your spiritual poverty. There's nothing in me, apart from God's grace, that is good, that is right. I came into this world conceived in sin. All my days I, I followed my own desires. And yet because of his mercy and his love and, and his grace... He's been merciful to me, not because of anything I deserve. Consequently, woe to you who think that you're rich. Jesus rebukes the church in Revelation who made this, church, this mistake. Listen to Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 to 19. The description is rebuked to the church at Laodicea. And he, he greets them, and then he rebukes them. He says, for you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's a church that thought they had it all together. And we thought, man, we're, we're rich and prosper and have no need of anything. And Jesus says, from my vantage point, you're, you're naked, poor, blind, and pitiable. Who do you think you are? And of course, we know what the right orthodox answer should be, but the truth comes out when things we don't like enter into our life. And we grumble and we raise our fist at God and we say, God, why, why didn't you give me this thing I asked for? Why did you let this bad thing happen to me? And what we're acting as though is he owes us something. Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, how blessed are those of his disciples who recognize their poverty, who recognize that God doesn't owe them anything, who recognize they have no rights before him, apart from his grace. Consequently, woe. Woe to those who are rich. You've received your consolation. That's kind of sad. You can have God's eternal consolation in heaven. You can have the offer of, well done, my faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom of your father. Or you can have your consolation now, and you can pat yourself on the back and feel good about yourself, and you can avoid all of that, you know, feeling bad, and then spend all of eternity without consolation. Jesus opens up with with that. You had your consolation now, much like the the rich man in Jesus' parable in in, uh, Luke 18, where Abraham says to him, to the rich man, then in in hell, remember in your time you had your good things. Lazarus now is being comforted. Who do you think you are? And what this is calling for is... uh, in Jesus' disciples is, is an attitude of humility and contrition that we never forget that everything we have is by grace. We don't start to begin to think God owes us something, that, that somehow he, he needs us. Um, now, who do you think you are? Do we recognize our poverty or do we think we're rich? Moving on to question number two. What will truly satisfy you? What will truly satisfy you? Blessed are those who hunger, and I add in, for God. I I think that's what he's talking about. The key here is, is a hunger that can't be satisfied now. Notice he jumps to the future tense. Blessed are you hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you, in verse 25, who are full now, for you shall be hungry. 
There's two groups of people. There are people who right now are unsatisfied. They hunger and thirst for something. And there are those people who right now, they're quite happy, quite satisfied. But in the future, they're going to be hungry. Which one of those groups are you? Blessed are you who hunger for God. That's really the issue here. Do you, when you look at yourself rightly, do you view yourself as someone who's longing for, looking for, hungering for, thirsting for something that is not in this world yet? Face-to-face fellowship with God. Life in the kingdom. C.S. Lewis has a famous quote, as does Augustine. I just want to read them to you. He says, If I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation that is I was made for another world. And C.S. Lewis. So I guess the question is, can't, does this world satisfy you? Between your toys and your relationships and your marriage and your kids and your vacation and your TV and your sports and your music, are you satisfied? Are you full? I mean, heaven's a nice thought. I mean, it's sure nice to go there, better than the other option. But honestly, Lord, could you wait a while before you come back? We haven't gone to Hawaii yet. <laughs> or do you have a hunger and a thirst that even though you, you've had tastes, you've had tastes in this life, times of fellowship, you've had tastes, you're waiting for the main course, and it's time for the appetizer to be put away. Bring on the main course. Lord, Come. Can you, can you echo the thoughts of the psalmist in Psalm 63, 1 to 5? O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Not, not, not necessarily that you're there 24-7 all the time. Have you ever been there? Or quite honestly, are you quite happy with this world and this life and the way things are, and you're quite satisfied. And yeah, sure, I don't want to go to hell. That doesn't sound like fun, but I sure don't want to go to heaven anytime soon. What will truly satisfy you? Blessed are you, hunger for God. You will find absolute satisfaction in Him, but woe to you. We're satisfied with this world. Listen to what John says in 1 John about the love of this world. If you love this world, the things of this world, this world satisfies you, you will ultimately spend eternity famished and hungry. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty clear. Hard but clear. Why? For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. If your appetite is set on this world, if your satisfaction comes from the things in this world, guess what? They will fade away and be gone, and you will be hungry for eternity. The world is passing away along with its desires. So Jesus said, how blessed. In what wonderful situation are those who are hungering and thirsting for something that isn't here yet because they're going to get it. They're going to receive the kingdom. They will be satisfied, but how pitiable are those people on the Titanic who are happy now. They're full now. They don't realize even these pitiful things they desire will turn into vapor and be gone for eternity.
Number three, how do you feel about yourself? How do you feel about yourself? And here the contrast is with weeping and laughing. Verse 21, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 25, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. How do you feel about yourself? We started, how do you think about yourself? You view yourself as rich, got it together, or poor. How do you feel about yourself? Now Jesus, a little bit later, turn, turn, turn to, to Luke 18, deals specifically with this. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, just like we saw at the end of chapter 5. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One's weeping, one's, one's mourning, one's boasting and proud. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How do you feel about yourself? Do, do, you, do you have a contrition for your sin? Do you have an awareness of your sin? Or, or again, we're back to, do you think you've got it all together? Do you think you're doing a good job? Are you weeping or are you laughing when you think of yourself? Now, yes, I know, in Christ, and with the redemption Christ brings, we, we understand we are beloved. We celebrate that. And not necessarily that you're living here, but are you spending any time here humbling yourself, Mourning your sin. Recognizing how, again today, I have let my father down. Again today, my heart has turned away. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh my God, please take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Weep now. Conversely, those who laugh now will weep. Jesus speaks, and we won't look at the passage for the time, but Jesus speaks about the outer darkness and there's gnashing of teeth in Luke 13. For people who thought they were going to be attendants, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Actually, I, I will read this. Matthew 13, 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside to knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. And he will answer you. I don't know where you come from. 
Then you will say, we, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But I will tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who laugh now. And ultimately, where the sermon gets to is ultimately don't obey. They just hear and live as they please. There will be gnashing of teeth weeping. This brings us then finally to the last, last question I want to ask. Whose reward do you seek? Whose reward do you seek? Now in both instances, these final couplet are the most developed. Here we reach the culmination. Here we reach the, the final point. Notice how much longer the fourth blessing is. Whereas in verse 21, two blessings fit in one verse. It takes two verses to to communicate this one blessing. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And here here we get to the culmination. Here we get to the final destination. You are either in one of two camps. You're either children of the true prophets or of the false prophets. You're either of the tribe of the true prophets, Jesus' true disciples, or you're of the tribe of the false prophets. This is where it ultimately ends up and culminates. And what really identifies and separates among Jesus' disciples of who's what is whose reward do you seek? Blessed are you who are rejected by men for Jesus' sake. And, and this is the hard one, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is, all of these are hard, but this is the particularly hard one because for the first time, I think, in our country's history, it is looking very likely that across the board, those who are faithful to the teachings of the Bible will suffer ridicule and be called things like hateful or bigoted intolerant, and people will lose their jobs, and they will be excluded, and they will be reviled on account of the Son of Man. But Jesus goes on more. He doesn't just tell them blessed. The challenge is, will we respond the way he wants us to respond? The only command here, the entire section of the Beatitudes, falls right here. Rejoice and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. You say, Oh, you can't be serious. That's got to just be hyperbole, right? Listen to Acts 5, 40 to 41. They called the apostles. They beat them. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And when they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So Peter and John didn't think this was hyperbole. They were beaten rebuked, imprisoned, and were let go, and they rejoiced being considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, it is completely legitimate for us to mourn the direction our culture is heading. It's completely legitimate to mourn um, legislators, politicians, 
vindicating the unjust, calling evil what is good and good what is evil. That, that is wholly appropriate. But as far as it relates to you and to me potentially getting some flack, as far as it relates to you and I being discomforted by this and the way people will treat us, Jesus tells us if we believe this, this is what we should expect. We shouldn't grumble, and we certainly shouldn't post little nasty memes on Facebook. We should do what? What does he say here? Rejoice and leap for joy. Now, which tradition of the prophets are we standing in now? Or do we really want, and the reward we seek, and, and Jesus puts a reward out there. He's not just saying, suck it up, buttercup. He's, you have a reward, and if you believe in this reward that you have now in heaven, notice it's not future tense. It's not great will be your reward in heaven. You have a reward, and it is in heaven, and it's great. And because of that reward, rejoice. Live life differently. Because of the reward that you have now, and you're confident in that reward, you're going to think differently. Or is the reward you want, I, I, I want people to think well of me. I want to be respected in my community. I want men to look up to me. Jesus says to those people, woe. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Again, weep and mourn. For, for the direction of the culture, weep and mourn for, for unjust and wicked laws. But when it comes to us and how we will be treated, don't become indignant. Don't become rude and sarcastic. Recognize that it's, it's proof of which tribe you belong to, of whose sons and daughters you are. And rejoice. And recognize that all of your grumbling and all of your complaining is really saying, yeah, that's great and all, but I really wish people could respect me and we could go back to the way things were, where people looked up to Christians and Christians were leaders in the community. That, that, that is an abnormality in world history. And if that did at all happen in our country, praise God for his grace. But Jesus is telling his disciples in church history and world history confirms that is not the norm. Jesus says in John 15, the world will hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This should not surprise us. It doesn't make it fun, and it doesn't make mistreatment enjoyable, but in, with, and along mistreatment and ridicule and exclusion, there should be profound joy. This is right. This is what my Lord predicted. They're, they're recognizing that I'm on his team, and they hate me because of it. I'm able to, in some way to follow in Jesus' footsteps, identifying with him. He was ultimately excluded. He was ultimately mistreated. And I, as his disciple, not above my master. Let us not begin to expect and demand better treatment than our Lord in this world. The world's acceptance ultimately indicates God's rejection. 
You can't have it both ways. You can't seek man's reward and God's reward. Jesus has this blistering rebuke to the Pharisees in John 5, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? And ultimately, how you respond to ridicule and mistreatment will indicate what you treasure. What do you value? We know the right answer. We know that I, I value God more. But, when, but the reality will be shown in our deeds is what I'm really after, the approval of man. Respect, being well thought of. What I can't tolerate is people looking down on me, people speaking ill of me, people holding me in contempt, people mistreating me, people leaving me out, not treating me fairly. That's intolerable, and by golly, I'll fight for that. Okay. We know what your reward is. We know what your treasure is. We know what you value. Consequently, those who can believe that they have now a reward in heaven and can live very differently. Because we can look at the people in the world who appear to be celebrating, and we know they're on the Titanic, don't we? And they've got the parties in full bloom, and the champagne's out, and the the dance is going on, and we know where that ship's headed to. And so we don't envy them. We don't get bitter towards them. As we find out next week, we love them. This is what it means to be Jesus' disciple. This is what it means to be his true follower. And I'm going to call the men up as we transition now into a time of celebrating the Lord's table. Let's examine ourselves, even now. Paul instructs us that it's good and right for us before we take this table to examine ourselves. The Word has just given us His Word to help expose our hearts. And Are we the blessed or are we the ones on whom the woes fall? Are we the sons and daughters of the true prophets or of the false prophets?